This is episode 276 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by our patrons. Listeners just like you sign up to support our show and contribute directly to programming, as well as get access to a library of bonus Shakespeare history content all on Patreon. Explore further and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Hi, I'm Jared Kirby. I'm the co-author of Staging Shakespeare's Violence. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. When Shakespeare's Measure for Measure was first staged in December of 1604... English common law recognized a couple's right to form a valid marriage through nothing more than mutual consent. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure, there's a fictional court case against Claudio for extramarital misconduct. The play separately asks the audience to pass judgment on Angelo regarding a marriage pre-contract that was known as spousal. It was a contract for Shakespeare's lifetime. Now, in 1604, when Measure for Measure was first performed, these cases of immoral behavior were being tried in a real-life court known as ecclesiastical courts, or more commonly as body courts. Many of the real people that had been brought up on charges in these body court cases were members of the audience being addressed by the play's fictional court portrayal. It was this same year that church courts started cracking down on engaged couples who were becoming secretly engaged or betrothed to one another without witnesses or parental consent. It was quite the scandal. And here today to tell us about the battle between civil and canon law that governed couples intending to get married and the specific changes to the canonical law that occurred in 1604, right when Shakespeare seems to comment on it with measure for measure, is our guest and theatrical historian, Cynthia Greenwood. Cynthia Greenwood is an independent scholar and theater critic who specializes in Shakespeare's Jacobean-era comedies. She's the author of Deciphering Shakespeare's Plays, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Shakespeare's Plays, and Chapter 10 in the collection Reflections on Medieval and Renaissance Thought, edited by Darcy Hill. Cynthia's chapter focuses on how Measure for Measure's body court ethos puts the canon law revisions of 1604 on trial. That's the chapter that she joins us today to discuss further. You can find out more about Cynthia, including links to her public locations and where you can follow her work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Cynthia. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Thanks, Cassidy. Thanks for having me. Really excited to discuss this little slice of 1604 history here, and I'd like to begin by asking you to explain the terms spousal and betrothal. What was meant by these terms in early modern England? In early modern England, A spousal or betrothal occurred when a man and a woman agreed to be married, either with or without witnesses, 
And to provide some context, when Shakespeare's Measure for Measure was first staged in December of 1604, English common law recognized a couple's right to form a valid marriage through nothing more than mutual consent. And what this means is that theoretically, two people could agree to be married without any witnesses and without parental consent. These clandestine marriages were known as spousals or espousals or betrothals or even pre-contracts. And these secret marriages allowed men and women a great deal of autonomy over their marital destiny. Now, during this time, spousals or betrothals were considered pre-contracts because they were generally understood to be only part of a marriage process. And this process needed to be followed by a public announcement known as reading of the bans and possibly a license, then a church solemnization or ceremony. And in spite of the fact that spousals were legally binding and valid, they were greatly frowned upon by society and the church. The church courts, in particular, which the Elizabethans called the body courts, and that's body spelled B-A-W-D-Y, could fine couples who entered into clandestine marriages without solemnizing them in the church. So for listeners to get a sense of this phenomenon, we can think about the phenomena of getting married and divorced today in the U.S. Most of us would agree that getting a divorce can be very messy, a very complicated process. For centuries ago, getting married would have been equally as complicated. Two people could declare themselves to be married in more than one way, and the disparity between what the English common law recognized and what the church law expected created a host of complications. The authors of one of my favorite sources on Shakespeare and the in the intersection of law and marriage have noted that Shakespeare was obsessed with spousals in his plays. And he inserted them into his scripts for a whole bunch of different dramatic purposes. What was the conflict between being betrothed and being formally married within the Church of England? Well, the Church of England considered a betrothal as merely the first step in the process of cementing the marital bond. And as I mentioned before, both the church and society in Shakespeare's time regarded a betrothal as a valid but an illicit marriage. So, to clarify, you have the long tradition of English common law, uh, going back to William the Conqueror, which allows two people to secretly marry through mutual consent. And this tradition stands squarely in conflict with church law. Church law prescribed that couples solemnize their marriage through multiple public announcements in church, followed by a formal ceremony. And I have argued in an essay that Shakespeare relished the opportunity to exploit the implications of these two conflicting legal traditions in his play Measure for Measure. 
In fact, he exploited the complications that spousals presented in 14 different plays, and he wasn't the only one. Other Elizabethan and Jacobean playwrights, for example, explored the conflicts between the type of clandestine marriage allowed by common law and the kind of formal solemnized marriage allowed by the church. So we understand there were a lot of places that Shakespeare exploited this conflict, including Measure for Measure and I think you said 14 other plays. One specific instance that I would like to ask you about comes up in Romeo and Juliet. Now, these lovers get married without parental consent, obviously, and they do have witnesses, however. And I think modern consumers of this story understand the lovers to be acting in secret. But in context of when the play was released, were Romeo and Juliet also behaving illegally? Was it unlawful for them to enter into a betrothal or a marriage in secret? this way? That's a good question, Cassidy. As a matter of fact, it was not unlawful for Romeo and Juliet to enter into a betrothal in secret as they did uh, for the reasons we've been discussing. By Act 2, Scene 6 of the play, Romeo and Juliet enter into a secret marriage that is perfectly legal with the help of the nurse and the friar, of course. In doing so, they run the risk of incurring their family's disapproval. And keeping in mind that they are member, they are part of the Montague and Capulet families, a union between these two star-crossed lovers violated a taboo because their families were engaged in a long-time feud. But because Romeo and Juliet consent to be married in secret, It means that Juliet's family were unaware that their daughter was betrothed. This allows Shakespeare to create ambiguity in the plot. He gives us a script in which Romeo and Juliet create a secret lawful marriage in which the espousal, the religious ceremony, and the consummation, presumably, are either witnessed or implied. Then he complicates the plot in Acts 3 and 4 by allowing Juliet's parents to plan a wedding between Juliet and Paris. If the Capulets had been successful in forcing their daughter to marry Paris, they would have unwittingly forced their daughter to commit bigamy. The fourth act of the play, we do get confirmation from Juliet that Romeo and Juliet are secretly married. And this happens when Juliet actually wonders aloud to herself if the sleeping potion that the friar has given to her is actually a poison meant to kill her. She asks herself if the friar might be dishonored because he secretly married the two of them. This entire situation is surprising to me, given the close relationship between the official state government and the the Church of England and the entire Protestant state of England at this time. The fact that the government or the the government separate from the church government is making a statement that, you know, you can get married with just the two people agreeing to it and you don't have to have anything else. And and they're recognizing that is fine. But in 1604, the church of England is coming out and saying, no, we are saying that that's strictly prohibited. You have to have witnesses 
you have to have parental consent. And I wonder if you can give us some context here in terms of what was going on in England that made the church feel like they needed to come out with this proclamation at this time. Sure. By 1603, around the time that Measure for Measure was composed, and not long before the 1604 canon laws or canon law revisions were enacted, the church courts had been criticized for being much too lenient with betrothed couples. A group of Puritans known as precisions, and by precisions we mean people who really stick hard and fast to the rules, to the law, A group of Puritans whose power at the time was growing under the reign of James I believed that the church court's punishments for clandestine marriages and fornication were too mild. These punishments, for example, might consist of threats of excommunication and disgrace. But the general feeling among many Puritans was that these punishments didn't have much of an impact and they didn't prevent, you know, more people from offending. Some legal experts believe that the precisions lobbied for these changes to canon law because if the accepted conditions for valid betrothal were narrowed, it might discourage premarital sex or at least reduce its frequency. As more and more couples began to realize that secret betrothals had been outlawed. And in fact, when the canon law that in question outlawed clandestine marriage, it was interesting because that's all it did. It actually didn't declare all previous secret marriages null and void. So this just really didn't solve the problem, historians are telling us. But I encourage listeners who are inclined to watch Measure for Measure on stage or on screen to pay careful attention to something the Duke says as he describes Angelo after he places him in charge of governing Vienna during his absence. The Duke actually refers to Angelo as precise which, as I said, is one who strictly interprets the rules or one his sort of puritanical. And through his characterization of Angelo, Shakespeare is signaling to his audience that Angelo may be as orthodox in his views about the Vienna fornication law as the strict English Puritans were who believed that the church court's punishment for fornication were too mild. Cynthia, explain for us the reach of this canon law. I mean, was this law binding for all churchgoers who supported the Protestant religion? Or is this also, you know, applying to, you know, anyone who might have attended the church because it was required by the, the government, but maybe were privately practicing Catholics? Exactly who could be prosecuted for violating this law? Well, that's a great question. As a preface to my response, I'd like to point out that for anyone residing in the U.S. and England today, religious worship is strictly voluntary. 
Today, a good number of Westerners may not align themselves with any church, but such a secular orientation was unheard of in Shakespeare's time. In early modern England, religious worship and a belief in magic even figured much more prominently in in the lives of all citizens. Even though Henry VIII helped usher in the Protestant Reformation in England, he still declared himself as the supreme head of the church, the Church of England, which is known today as the Anglican Church. And his hierarchy of bishops remained extremely powerful in spite of the fact that the monasteries had been dissolved with the help of of Thomas Cromwell. So there was no separation between church and state, and canon laws were binding for all churchgoers. In Shakespeare's time, all citizens were expected to attend Sunday services, even if their religious proclivities were not aligned with the Church of England. And these same citizens were subject to the laws and the rules surrounding church attendance that were administered by the church courts. Under Elizabeth, Catholics were expected to attend church on Sunday or risk punishment in front of the body court. Radical Puritans who disagreed with the liturgy of the Church of England were also expected to attend church. And through Her very controversial act of uniformity, which did barely pass Parliament, Elizabeth I did retain some Catholic rituals in the church service, such as kneeling for communion, for example. These were rituals that Elizabeth believed would make English Catholics feel more comfortable attending church services because it was mandatory. And there were many, many Catholics still practicing during the time of Elizabeth. How does the fictional court case against Claudio in Shakespeare's Measure for Measure reflect genuine issues surrounding sexual conduct outside of marriage in the late 16th and early 17th century England? Great question. First, it's very important to understand that no church court in England could ever extend the death penalty to an accused for the crime of fornication, as Angelo does in Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. This premise by William Shakespeare is completely unrealistic. Only the king's court could hand down the death penalty for a civil crime. In Shakespeare's day, fornication was considered a much less serious example of misconduct that might warrant excommunication by the body court. But despite the play's setting in Vienna instead of London, it's clear that Shakespeare wanted to tap into his English audience's experience of the conflicts between the sexual autonomy that the common law grants to couples versus what the church courts and society expected in the way of sexual restraint. Many Puritans believed in the sanctity of marriage by this time, and they preferred that couples not have sex before having a formal church wedding. I believe that Shakespeare also wanted 
to provoke his audience's actual knowledge of the very public body court trials that happened frequently during King James's reign in the play by indicting Claudio and Juliet's sexual conduct and Juliet's pregnancy before a marriage solemnization in such an improbable fashion, Shakespeare could be urging his audience to consider the implications of Angelo's enforcement of the letter of the Duke's statue prohibiting fornication. In a nutshell, the play may have forced Jacobean-era spectators to ask some very important questions. For example, was the incidence of sex by betrothed couples too high? And were the body court punishments too lenient? And should egregious cases of sexual misconduct be tried by civil rather than church authorities? Or how might the prosecution of sexual misconduct be changing under the 1604 provision that outlawed clandestine marriages? Even though Claudio never comes to harm because the Duke ensures that his life is saved, the provocative nature of the case against Claudio could have encouraged audiences to ponder his dilemma on the way home from the theater. And in addition, the circumstances surrounding this unfair arrest of Claudio would probably have seemed very, very controversial to Shakespeare's viewers because many of the play's scenes that show Claudio being imprisoned and his sister as Isabella pleading to Angelo on his behalf might have resonated very differently among self-avowed Catholics and Anglicans, perhaps, compared to self-avowed Puritans. It's amazing how understanding what was going on in England during Shakespeare's lifetime and the passage of things like the 1604 canon law really just brings to life some of these scenes and and comments like being called precise that you might otherwise completely overlook when you are seeing these plays for the first time for sure. And I know that we would love to dive into this history further and explore it more. So I want to ask you about some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to explore this further. I'm completely indebted to all of these sources that I'm, I'm going to mention. If, if anyone is interested in how marriage and the law intersect in Shakespeare's plays, I would highly recommend a title called Shakespeare Law and Marriage by B.J. Sokol and Mary Sokol, S-O-K-O-L. Anne Barton has also written a superb essay on marriage law in Shakespeare in a collection entitled Essays Mainly Shakespearean. Another excellent book is Shakespeare in the Law, edited by Paul Raffield and Gary Watt. This collection contains two excellent essays that are useful for those who want to read further, in particular, Jonathan Bate, to whom I'm extremely indebted for all of my ideas about the body court. His essay entitled The Body Court is Invaluable, as well as an essay by Germaine Greer entitled Shakespeare in the Marriage Contract. 
These are excellent resources. We will place links to these in the show notes for today's episode. So you can go there directly and get right where you need to be if you want to explore some of these resources. Now, Cynthia, we ask everyone this next question here on That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, that's a tough choice. Possibly a copy of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, or I'm going to fudge and say the fifth edition of H.W. Jansen's History of Art. I don't think I've ever had someone pick a History of Art book for their Desert Island selection, but I have to say I admire that selection because it just seems entertaining in a way that straight literature might not be if you had paintings to share on the on the island. I like this selection. I think that's excellent. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I continue to dig into issues surrounding law and marriage in Shakespeare, but also, you know, external to that topic. I'm researching how marriage laws in England were influenced by the Roman Catholic Church and how the tradition of spousals or betrothals actually resembled informal marriage practices in Stephen F. Austin's colony when Texas still belonged to Mexico in the early 19th century. That sounds like a fascinating subject to be working on. We look forward to seeing what you come up with with that work. Cynthia Greenwood, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through the relationship between the 1604 canon law and what we see portrayed in Shakespeare's plays, including Measure for Measure. This has been a fun conversation, and I thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Cassidy. It's been a pleasure. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a rating and a review on the platform you're listening from today. Every rating and review helps other Shakespeareans discover our show. And as you know, we love connecting with our friends. If you would like to see some visual content that coordinates with our conversation today, then check out the show notes for today's episode. Not only are there museum artifacts, archival information, paintings and woodcuts all packed into the show notes, but it's also the best place to go directly to the resources Cynthia recommends you check out if you want to explore this history further. There's a lot more to explore, and you can find all of it at CassidyCash.com slash episode 276. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP276. If you enjoy our show here each week and you would like to go even deeper into the life of William Shakespeare and turn of the 17th century England the way that Shakespeare would have lived it, then consider becoming a patron. Patrons get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show, along with access to behind-the-scenes extras, sneak peeks at upcoming guests, bonus artwork from my shop, along with a whole lot of other bonuses, including educational resources like hands-on activity kits that let you try out a piece of Shakespeare's history for yourself at home. There's games, recipes, crafts, lesson plans, all of which coordinate with specific episodes of our show and with Shakespeare's plays. So if you're looking to take our podcast into your classroom, there's some great resources for you there as well. Find all of the fun things and join us as a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. 
As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into that Shakespeare life.